This is Tucker Booth back here with the Rappers Don't Golf podcast, courtesy of FromTheBackTees.com. Yet another amazing guest today for our Thanksgiving holiday special. I've got the man that they call the man of many games. Terry Gannon grew up in Joliet, Illinois, and eventually went on to play for the North Carolina State Wolf Pack, which was named the Cardiac Pack, which miraculously won the 1983 NCAA Championships in a massive upset over Houston. He then went on shortly thereafter, based on the advice of his coach Jim Valvano, to take up broadcasting and became a sportscaster of note. I don't even have the time to list all of the various places and things that this man has done as far as sports go, but just a few. He has broadcast college basketball, football. He has done pro golf. He has done NBC sports for the figure skating at the Olympics. He has called the Tour de France. He has called the Belmont Stakes. I could go on and on, but I'm going to go ahead and just hand it over. Terry Gannon, thanks so much for being on our podcast today. How you doing? Tucker, you can list all of them. Go ahead. <laughs> I like hearing all of that. We've got an hour, right? I can just spend an hour reading your resume. That would be fun, right? I got, I got plenty of time. I forgot a few of those. Yeah, we're fine. <laughs> No, it's good to be on with you, and uh, happy holidays, my man. Yeah, thank you, man. So I guess we'll start by just saying, could you please flesh out this prestigious broadcasting and sports resume that I just began to vaguely outline? Can you tell us some of the many things that you've done and kind of the highlights, in your opinion, of your career? Yeah, I've been so lucky. I mean, really, because none of this was planned. I was going to be a basketball coach. I mean, my dad was a basketball coach. I grew up, that's all I wanted to be. Played for Jim Valvano at NC State, dream come true. We won a national championship. And then I was an assistant coach for Jim Valvano. And uh, my, that first year, it kind of all came together. All at once, I had a chance to go play basketball in Europe. Didn't quite make the NBA. Um, and at the same time, Jefferson Pilot and Raycom, who did the ACC basketball package, came to me and said, you know, we've interviewed you a lot. You're really good on TV. I, I think you'd be good. You want to give it a shot. And so I went in to talk to him, and, and he kind of, in 30 seconds, talked me into going after a career in TV and said, if you ever don't like it or you stink, come on back. I'll hire you as a coach. And, uh, you know, 30-some-odd years later, I'm still doing this, and I've done things that I never thought I'd do. Early on, I... I um, I signed with ABC at some point, and um, it just took off from there. And it was part of that wide world of sports. Wide world of sports was still a show on the air. And so all the people, the producers, the directors, the camera operators, everybody that I got a chance to work with early, those were people who helped really start the sports TV industry with Rune Arledge at the Olympics and wide world of sports all those years ago. And so I learned from the best, you know, the guys who, and girls who created it. And, um, it was, uh, it was something that I won't say I fell into it. You got to work your rear end off. But the fact is I didn't map it out. You know, it wasn't my goal. I didn't say in two years, I want to get here three years. I want to get there. I just took every opportunity that came my way and was willing to. And I ended up doing, you know, figure skating in Tokyo and then mountain biking in Vail and ski flying in Slovenia <laughs> as a part of <laughs> wide world of sports and uh, the World Cup. And you, you know, you, you get a new sport and the first thing you do is you go buy like rugby for dummies, right? You start at the ground floor and you just learn that sport and uh, somehow you hope you pull it off by the time you go 
on air. Now, I read that you have had mentors that are obviously some of the titans of sports broadcasting. You had mentioned that Al Michaels and Harry Carey in the early years at ABC's Wide World of Sports were big influences on you. Uh, Maybe tell us a little bit about some of that and maybe any other of these wonderful mentors that might have helped you along the way. Well, Al Michaels and Harry Carey usually are not mentioned in the same breath. I mean, they're, they're a little bit different. The Harry Carey part of it, and, and years ago somebody asked me this question, and, and Harry Carey was the first guy to come to mind because I grew up in the Chicago area, and for a long time he was the White Sox announcer before moving over to the Cubs, um, which most people know him around the country because of WGN from the Cubs. But I was a White Sox fan. And he was the ultimate fan. I mean, he just, he, it, look, you're, you're not taught at the highest level to root for a team one way or another. In fact, you're taught not to. But he was the White Sox announcer. And he was rooting for the White, White Sox. And he was real. He was authentic. He was in the moment. Now, he also had about seven Budweiser's by the sixth inning. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, different animal. We, we, we're not able to do that anymore. So, but, but he was a huge influence on me as a kid growing up because I was a big White Sox fan. And then Al is just Al. I mean, I, to have an opportunity to, just to work the Olympics and be around Al and watch him or whatever he's doing. Um, I, I mean, he's, he's, there's nobody better, I think, ever than, than Al Michaels. And so once I became a broadcaster, and, and early on I got a chance to work with Brent Musburger too, and I did, because I started as a color analyst in basketball. That, that was my first gig, That's it, which makes sense. I was a basketball player. And uh, I actually was teamed up with Brent Musburger on ABC Games uh, for a couple of years spotty. Now, that wasn't his regular uh, partner on the air, but I got to do several games with him. And I also traveled the year that my, my coach, Jim Valvano, uh, had cancer and was working still as an announcer. He was Brent Musburger's partner, and, and I would go to certain games that year just in case he was not physically able to step in and do the game. Um, and, and I learned a hell of a lot from Brent and watching him. And then eventually I made the switch in basketball. I had already done so in other sports, play-by-play, but I switched from a color analyst to a play-by-play guy in basketball. And, and having worked with people like Brent, you know, you take it in, you watch, you observe when you're young, and, and you watch how people handle this situation or come on the air, how you play off of a scenic here, a tease inside the building, create the excitement, bring people to the arena, and all of that stuff I learned from those guys when I worked with them early on. Well, you mentioned Coach Valvano, and of course you know I've got to bring him up early and often in this interview. Being someone that has been so close to him and that obviously shares this chapter of NCAA basketball history with him, maybe kind of get in the time machine with us, Terry. Take us back to NC State. I don't know how far you want to take us back, but tell us a little bit about that experience playing basketball for obviously one of the most legendary and iconic coaches in Jim Valvano. The championship run, the improbable win over Houston with their mighty team that year, and then a little bit about how Coach Valvano got you into broadcasting, because I know you give him credit for being the one that encouraged you to make the switch from basketball dreams to broadcasting. Well, you know, first, for, I, I grew up in the Midwest and got recruited by Midwest teams, uh, Marquette, uh, the Big Ten teams, and all throughout. He came in 
for a home visit from NC State, walked in the door, and five minutes later with my mom and dad uh, there, I was going to NC State. I mean, he just takes over a room. If you've ever been around someone who walks in and takes over a room, that was Jim Valvano. He had that kind of presence. He had that kind of personality still to this day. And all the people that we meet in, in, in our business and in sports, he is the smartest, funniest, most enthusiastic man, person I've ever been around, hands down. He just lived every second, you know. And uh, he used to joke, and sadly passed early in life, but he used to joke on my tombstone. What I wanted to say is I, James T. Valvano, being of sound mind and body, spent it. <laughs> that's what he did with, that, with every second that he ever lived. So you're in a room with him, and you're challenged to bring your A, a game. You know, you're in a conversation. You're, he'll make you look bad if, uh, if you don't bring your A game to that conversation every single second. So he was one of those motivators who, yeah, he was a, a great speaker in, in the SB speech, which, you know, most people have seen. Sure. That was him. But he was like that all the time. I mean, it, the, if I only had an iPhone back then to take the pregame speeches and the halftime speeches, uh, make a lot of money now just selling those. And um, so to play for him, I think there wasn't another coach who could have taken that 1983 NC State team, which were huge underdogs, and we won so many games in the, in the tournament, the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournament, with huge comebacks or buzzer beaters or upsets. It was because he made us believe in his own way that we could not lose. You got to the last three minutes of game, and you just knew you were going to pull it out somehow, some way. So fast forward to me having a chance to go into to TV. Um, it was because of him. And, yeah, he did talk. But I mean, I came in and I had those options. And in about 30 seconds, you know, he said, Terry, you're short, you're slow, you can't jump. Who are you going to be, Walt Frazier? Get on with your life. That took care of my, my professional basketball career. And I said, well, what about TV? And he said, well, go do it. If, if you stink or you don't like it, you come back. I'll hire you. I said, well, that's pretty much it then. We're, we kind of mapped out my life in 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I got a phone call. I got to go. So, and that's how I decided to go into TV. And, and um, then, But he gave me opportunities, too, and he would talk. I still miss him to this day, all these years later picking up the phone and saying, hey, did you see the closing ceremony at the Olympics that, that we got a chance, I got a chance to host? What do you think? You know, and, and he would always be honest with me, and he would never hold back. Um, and that idea of why not is, you know, somebody's got to do it, why not me, um, is why when I signed at ABC and, you know, literally I'm doing basketball, and on a Monday – Jack O'Hara, the executive producer of ABC Sports, calls me up and says, hey, I want you to do play-by-play on North Carolina Georgia Tech this weekend. There's that pause. You say, Jack, it's not basketball season. Plus, I'm a color analyst. What are you talking about? No, no, football. I want you to do play-by-play this weekend on football, on ABC. <laughs> you have that, that moment where you either go, you're out of your mind. This could be disastrous. I, I or you go, okay, why not? And you hang up the phone and then you call every play-by-play guy that you know, and you say, I got three days for you to teach me how to do play-by-play in football. Send me your boards. Send me tapes. Give me tips. 
and you go on, you sink or swim. And, you know, I survived. Same thing with figure skating. I mean, I never thought about doing figure skating, calling figure skating. And I got a call on a Tuesday and said, hey, next week I need you to go to Tokyo and call figure skating. And I'm like, well, I know who Peggy Fleming is. Beyond that, I really don't know anything. Oh, you'll be fine. Study up. <laughs> and, and oh, by, oh, by the way, you, you got a tux too, right? Because they wear tuxes and figure skating. Oh, yeah, 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 I got a tux. You know, you get off the phone. You go rent a tux. <laughs> you don't own a tux. Kid from Joliet. Who's got a tux? Um, and, and you go and, and you sit next to Peggy Fleming and Dick Button and you call a figure skating event. And, you know, years later I'm working with Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir and doing the Olympics in figure skating. And you just shake your head sometimes at how you get from point A to point B. But for me, and it's not for everybody, but for me it was the willingness to say yes to all those different opportunities that came along and not necessarily map out step-by-step step everything I wanted to accomplish. I had dreams, but I didn't have short-term goals because it would have, looking back, it became apparent it would have limited me. You know, if I say, okay, I want to get here, then there, then there. Actually, I would have limited myself in all the opportunities that have come my way. Well, you seem like an incredibly malleable guy, not only in the sports casting world, but also with coachability because, you know, most kids at that age coming out of college fresh off a humongous ego boost with a national championship the way you guys won it. I don't know if they'd be willing to take coaches' advice like that and just roll with it in 30 seconds. I mean, the, the thought that you were so willing to follow his direction shows what an amazing coach he must have been, but also how flexible you, never, you are. You never, you never met you never met Jim Valvano, did you? Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, he was that kind of person. When he told you something, you believed it. We came in the locker room before Houston, who had Clyde Drexler and Akeem Olajuwon, two future Hall of Famers. They had for uh, another number one draft pick. They, I mean, they were ridiculously talented. And for two days, Jim Valvano had talked to the media about how we had to hold the ball. You know, we had to slow it down. And, in fact, he said back then he didn't have a shot clock. If we get the opening tip, we might not take a shot until Tuesday morning. <laughs> so that, that, that's what we heard him saying to everybody. And you come in and you sit down in the locker room. Everybody's so nervous. There's been 50 million people, at least back then, watching this game. And, and Monday night, for, for the whole thing, it can change your life. And you're sitting there, and he finally walks in the locker room. And the entire scouting report is up on the board. And he reaches over, paces back and forth, and he grabs the eraser. And he erases the entire scouting report. Everything we're planning to do. Zone defense, man defense, how do you guard Elijah One? What are we going to erases it and throws the eraser away and turns around and says, if you think we're going to hold the ball in front of 50 million people for the national championship, you're out of your mind. We're going to go out there and kick their ass. <laughs> Everybody jumps up. It's like a movie, you know, and we're we're jumping up and we're we're yelling and screaming, and we bust through the tunnel and we go down for the warmups. And the thing is, he knew that the one thing we needed to hear was that he believed in us. He believed that we were going to win. And by God, would they? They could have told us you're going out there to play the Celtics. We, if he told us we were going to win, we didn't know how, but we believed we were going to win. And that kind of person, that kind of personality, 
Um, that's how he was in life. That's how he was with everything. He was into everything. He had businesses. He had uh, a sculptor on staff who did the uh, first Kentucky Derby winner, the statue out in the paddock of Churchill Downs. That was his artist who did that, his sculptor who did that. Um, he was an English major who would quote all the great poets and writers and historians at, in halftime speeches. You know, Part of the lesson he taught us all was that it's not just basketball. It's, your life should not be just basketball. Um, and years later, I think that's still true with the most successful people out there who are athletes or coaches or involved in sports. When you graduated from NC State, if I'm correct, with a history degree, so you're not a one-trick pony in college. You were not somebody just there to play basketball. Um, and obviously your history degree comes in handy with all of these different sports that you call. I guess before we move on from Coach for a minute, uh, obviously without getting too deep into it, Jim is known as someone that is incredibly inspiring because of his battle with cancer and also setting up the Jimmy V Foundation, which obviously raises millions and millions of dollars for cancer research and helping to battle cancer currently. Uh, how involved were you with him down the stretch of his life, and how involved are you now with the Jimmy V Foundation and its efforts? I, I go to a lot of different functions for the V Foundation. I'm involved heavily. Um, but back then, it was when he was dying of cancer, and... You know, sports fans know they've seen the thing with how close he got to Mike Krzyzewski during that time. And he was he was in the hospital at Duke. And Mike would go visit him, and he did. And they became very close. But a number of us would. I, I went to visit him in the hospital, spent time. And, you know, he was in really bad shape. I mean, he was he had tumors all over his body. He, he would be in such pain that he had a button for the pain relief. And, and he didn't want to press it. He wanted to be awake in it, but he'd have to do it. So he spend time um he'd be out for a while and he'd come to but every waking moment as he was dying of cancer was him getting across to his friends and the people who were around him of what he wanted to do to set up this foundation to maybe not save him but save his daughter's lives and save your daughter's lives and your son's lives and down the down the stretch to not accept it as a fact of life it, life that you get cancer and you die and so he would say terry i want you to do this you gotta go do this frank's gonna do this and mike's gonna go do this and that's how he created the v foundation for cancer research and then went to the espies when he could barely make it i mean really i don't know how he made it to that place that night and, and to get on stage and then once he got a mic in his hand <laughs> he could be taking his last breath and something would happen to him, and, and he was on, and, and he would take you there, and obviously did with that speech and inspired so many people. But that was a big night in the creation of the V Foundation because ESPN got behind it. So many big entities got behind it, and now it's raised, years later, hundreds of millions of dollars and built wings on hospitals and funded so many different avenues of cancer research and, by the way, saved his middle daughter's life who got breast cancer, um, who was treated, and she was treated at one of those hospitals that was funded and built by the V Foundation. So it's it, in those t times when he was at his worst physically, he was Jimmy V. He was doing what he does, and, and he created all of this 
at that time, and it's uh, it's some kind of success story. And, and still, it's not done yet. It's, uh, you know, obviously, cancer is still uh, something that touches us all. And so, one day, one day. Well, that's amazing. And anybody listening, obviously, it's not hard to find information on the V Foundation. And I encourage you to look it up online or elsewhere if you're interested in helping support this wonderful cause. So, okay, Terry, let's shift gears a little bit. You're now officially a broadcaster. You've gotten all of these different opportunities that you described. You're starting to get your your sea legs with all of this. Now, at some point, I know you transitioned from... ABC and ESPN, where you were kind of early on in the early 90s, to um, working with the Golf Channel. Uh, now, I know that initially that was part of ABC, correct? PGA and Champions Tour used to be on ABC, but then it segued to the Golf Channel, and you were hired by Golf Channel as well. Now, since this is a golf podcast, and all these listeners surely see you calling these golf matches week after week... When did that become kind of one of your bread and butter things? I know it's not your only bread and butter thing, but when did that kind of become something you knew that you were especially astute at? And was golf something you always did through life and were always interested in, or was it yet another thing like figure skating that you kind of figured out along the way? Uh, 1997 is when I first uh, started to do golf for ABC. Right about the time, right after Tiger came out, you know, for some reason... His arrival onto the PGA Tour gets a lot more notice than mine. I, I, I can't believe that. I don't. <laughs> no kidding. Um, yeah. No, you don't agree. I can tell, but it's not your voice. You don't agree. Okay. Um, so, Jack Graham, who was at ABC at the time, and we had the PGA Tour package, ABC uh, did, and then it eventually expanded to ESPN as well. Uh, he got. He was the guy who got first involved in golf. Um, and I was calling, you know, college football, college basketball, uh, figure skating at the time, a number of different sports. And uh, he said, hey, would you want to do some golf? And I said, absolutely. I, I mean, I grew up in Joliet, Illinois. Yes, at the playgrounds playing hoops every day, but also would go out with my friends and play public courses there in Inwood and um, Wedgwood and what's that? Woodruff? Yeah, Woodruff. And my dad, who was not only a high school coach, but also just a sports guy. I mean, they lived for sport. It was his life. And he was the, the typical on the weekends, go have his foursome, you know, with the guys and, and, and maybe a dollar or two on the line uh, or a beverage or two. And uh, I would go out and ride with him and bring a couple of clubs. And every once in a while, he'd let me get out of the cart and hit a shot into a green and this and putt. And so that was my... I don't think that's unusual. I think a lot of people grew up playing that way, you know? And um, so, I and, and then the memories I have as a kid of golf are basically on the couch, sitting there watching Jack Nicklaus, watching Arnold Palmer, watching Lee Trippi, you know, all the greats, and Sunday charges um, with my dad. You know, there's still great, great memories. So that when it, I was asked, would I want to do some golf? I mean, I, I jumped at the chance. And... Um, in Milwaukee, that was my first one, Brown Deer, and uh, I believe 1997. So I got a chance right away to work with the, the Andy Norris and the Curtis Stranges and the Billy Kratzerts and, uh, and Peter Alice and Judy Rankin and did a number of years to the British Open for a number of years with ABC, kind of morphed into ESPN. And at some point late in that run, uh, the rights changed and the PGA Tour went and um, I was still with ABC and ESPN but got the opportunity to come over was offered uh, 
you know, a chance to come over to, to Golf Channel and NBC as well and uh, and jumped at it. And it's been terrific since then. So you mentioned Tiger Woods, and of course, no golf podcast would be complete without the requisite Tiger shining. Uh, so you you were in a fortuitous position here where you got to start calling golf right as he was starting his marvelous dominance of the game. Uh, any Tiger anecdotes you've got, maybe as far as calling him or uh, rubbing elbows with him? What what's jumps out to you in the last 20-some years of the Eldrick Tiger Woods story that's notable from your perspective? Total dominance. I mean, I've never seen an athlete dominate both physically and mentally. Michael Jordan comes close, you know, and, it, uh, and I played against him in college, and he went on to become, obviously, well, I, uh, the greatest ever, I think. And and uh, he would do the same type thing, not only physically on the basketball court, but mentally. He just dominated you. He had a will that you knew you weren't going to break, and he would often express it to you. And Tiger has done that throughout the years a little bit, too. I remember early on, I can't, I can't remember who it was. The story would be better, but I remember he was – you know, in contention on a Sunday and on the range, and came up. and And if you know Tiger, you know he was half kidding. He was just, but the uh, young guy he was playing against that day who had the lead, Tiger came up and just said, "You know, I'm going to kick your ass today, right? I <laughs> kick your ass," and he just walked away. And that was Tiger, you know. And of course, he did. Um, but I mean, in 2000, what he did just to watch him be so much better than everybody else. Uh, was an amazing thing. And, and whether you want to argue Jack or Tiger as the greatest ever, to me, I don't really get excited about those arguments. I mean, who, what's it take away from Jack Nicholas if you say Tiger Woods was the greatest ever, or from Tiger if you say Jack Nicholas was the greatest ever? I mean, guess what? They're in, they're in the same boat. They're, they're in an echelon. They're, they're in a shelf that's higher than anybody's else, anybody else's. And um, he, what he's doing now, though, it's not as impressive as, as, as that. It's not as dominant, obviously. But in some ways, it's almost as impressive to watch a guy lose it all, go through what he did. And physically, a couple of years ago, he came in and sat next to Faldo in the, in the booth and did some TV, and he could hardly get out of the chair. And uh, he, when he left that day, I kind of looked at Nick, and Nick looked at me, and we're like, man, this this might be over. And I don't. I don't think he's coming back. And so, to win a major, to win, you know, I'm not going to doubt him from this point forward. Can he catch Jack? Who knows? He might. I mean, I, I really am not going to say he can't do anything at this point. So you talk about the Tiger and Jack debate, and I'll just fire the question at you in a new way. What would it take for Tiger to officially end the debate that he is surely greater than Jack? Is it simply 19 majors? Is there any other way that can happen, in your opinion? What's it going to take? Put it this way. I think there will still be people out there who will, I don't know about 19, if he catches it. You know what I mean? Because then he's got the number of wins that he has overall. You certainly could you could shut down the debate with that uh, added to it if he if he caught Jack. But if he, the only way you're going to stop the debate is if he at least does that, um, which is not bad. Debate's not bad. Arguments aren't bad. I kind of enjoy arguments. Uh, you know, you have in other sports, college football, and who should make the playoff, and used to be who should be number one or number two in the polls. So. Um, but I, I, I think 
for me, just for me, moment in time. Take the moment where each player was most dominant, that talent, that mental side of it. They both had all of it. They had everything. But I think you can make the case that Tiger is the greatest of all time. But then, of course, the other things come into it, longevity and, and what you do over the course of time and everything else. So, uh, But there was a time when he, you know, he just not only hit it farther than anybody else and overpowered him, but he made every single pot that he needed. I mean, every one. And some that, you know, you'd say, no way he's making this, and he does. So. Yeah, I hear that. And you've already said you think Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player, so we know where you err on the LeBron and Michael debate. But I want to just briefly touch on Michael because you brought up yet another name that was on my list of people I wanted to ask you about. Now, you guys played against my hero as a child, which is Clyde Drexler. I'm originally from Portland, so Clyde was my hero as a child. Uh, you've played against Michael Jordan. You've played against Hakeem Olajuwon. These are these are Hall of Fame names. Who was the most fun to play against? Who was the most terrible to play against? You know, give us a little bit of some of the people that you've actually competed against in hoops that you consider to be the most memorable. Well, the most fun was Clyde and uh, and Elijah Wan because we played them once and we beat them. So That's it. <laughs> national championship. I, I'm sorry about that, but, you know. In your face, Clyde. I, I take that back. Clyde actually left, and Elijah Wan was still there. And we played Houston in the first game of the year. The next year it was a tip-off classic in Springfield. And we had lost three seniors who were our stars. Spud Webb came in. And he was my backcourt mate. We played the backcourt. And we beat Houston the next year. Now, they didn't have Clyde Drexler, and they, they weren't quite the same team. But uh, we beat Elijah one again. But Michael Michael was one of those – I mean, you knew how – he was a player a year in college basketball. So for everybody who says, well, he wasn't that good in college, uh, no, sorry. He was great in college. What he became in the NBA was the GOAT. Um, so he – Yes, he was a different player once he got to the NBA because he played in the Dean Smith, North Carolina system where they spread the ball around, pass, pass, pass. They didn't really let a James Worthy or a Sam Perkins or a Michael Jordan take over the game. Although when you got three names like that in the same team, yeah, you do spread the ball around a little bit. Um, but, he, but he was, there are certain guys that were scary, you know, that could really make you look bad. There are some guys you compete against, you know they're really good, but they're not going to embarrass you. Michael, every second of the game, could embarrass you. Um, but we got him a few times. We, we, we beat him enough. You know, we beat him when it counted the ACC tournament and um, during the regular season that year, my sophomore year. It, there, there was no game that you got up for. Because back in the day, it was NC State and North Carolina with two big rivals. Duke was just really starting to get good. Um, but... I'll give you one more name and then move on. Who, it's tragic that he didn't get an opportunity to go on and play in the NBA, but Lenny Bias was in that category. He he was going to be one of the all-time greats in the NBA. And uh, cut, cut short, obviously, before he got, I mean, the fact that Larry Bird stuck around, decided to play another year to play with Lenny Bias tells you all you need to know. Wow. Yeah, that is truly a what could have been scenario there for sure. So, okay, I'm going to ask a broader question now about sports. What is your favorite sport 
to cover if you have one or if not do you just love all the different opportunities and challenges that are presented with these opportunities or do you have a special love I mean is basketball your favorite because you're so knowledgeable about it and so much a part of your soul or have you learned to love other sports I mean I I see you and Tara and Johnny doing figure skating and it looks like you're having a ball I mean what is your favorite or do you have a favorite to cover all right, I'm not going to, uh, not that I want to dodge the question, I'm not going to give you my favorite, uh, but I'm most comfortable now in my career sitting in the booth covering a golf event and a basketball game. A basketball game is natural to me because I grew up with it. I mean, that's, I was more than anything a basketball player. I played baseball, I played golf, I played all different sports growing up, but I became a basketball player. It's a natural thing for me to sit down and call a basketball game. And I miss the opportunity. I don't get many with the contracts that we have now. Um, hopefully that'll change when we get some more. But, uh, but week to week, golf is very natural to me it, it now. It, it's what I really uh, enjoy sitting down. And, it, and it's, people don't realize it, it's really challenging compared to other sports because there are 18 different arenas or playing fields, you know, and you're, you're 18 holes and you're pulling in shots from different players all across the golf course. And it comes off as it's slow and, you know, sometimes um, you relax on the couch, maybe you fall asleep and you wake up and, okay, there are two holes ahead. It, it is the exact opposite from a TV standpoint <laughs> because it's taking place on so many different playing fields. Um all told, though, what I love about sports and calling sports is the competition, the head-to-head competition. Like, I, I love competition. So it doesn't matter whether it's gymnastics, which I'm calling now, and I'll be calling that at the next Olympics in Tokyo, whether it is figure skating, whether it's basketball, football, golf, or even, you know, sports that aren't the mainstream sports in America, I've called overseas with Tour de France and soccer. Um, it is, I love the cerebral aspect of picking Nick Faldo's brain about what this guy is going through here with three holes to play, trying to protect a one-shot lead, and, and, and how you pull off those shots down the stretch. Or Johnny and Tara, this 15-year-old girl is at the Olympics. There are millions watching on TV. There's 20,000 in the arena, and she's out there all by herself and, and trying to pull off this four-minute program for the gold medal. Um, that, that'll always fascinate me, and it doesn't matter what the sport is. I mean, I called rowing in the Olympics in London a few years ago. You know, when I first heard that I was calling rowing, I didn't know anything about it. You get two oars. You know, you, you go fast. And as hard as you can, you pull. Um, the more you get into it, the more you learn the intricacies, and then the pressure that this guy is under because he is the favorite coming in, but he's been upset the last two, come, you know, and he's had this happen to him and that happened to him the last couple of Olympics, and it's once every four years that this person gets a chance to, to change their life. Um, that, no matter the sport, that's fascinating to me. So you mentioned all the juggling act that goes into the golf broadcast. Do you just do copious amounts of study ahead of time so that you come in feeling like you're on top of this? Or is this real-time jumping around 
with your crack team of helpers to try and make sure that you stay on top of all these spinning plates in the air at a golf tournament? What you do, well, what you do when you start out, it's, yeah, it, you just cram. You read everything and watch everything and everything. But once, I mean, it's my job. I've been doing it since the, the mid-90s now. Um, every day, you do, you do this, I'm sure. Every day you get up and you have the websites you go to. You have uh, on Twitter what, what you're following. And you stay up on it. And then you're watching TV and you're, you're, you're watching Golf Central, whatever it is. And so you, you never get behind. And it's something that you're into anyway. You're, you're going to be interested in these things anyway. Um, and then every tournament, I put together a sheet which has all the information that I want to know without having to think about it. You know, the history of the event, past champions, record scores, uh, the winner of every tournament this year, all, everything, the golf course, all the details on the golf course that are interesting to me. And I, I put it there on the computer, and the act of putting it, grabbing it from out here somewhere and putting it down there into my computer so it puts it up in my brain. And so you don't really have time to look down at your sheet all the time. You're on TV. You're in the moment. It's live TV. But hopefully by putting it there, I put it up in my brain. And so then what it allows you to do is when you're live, you're reactive. You're in the moment. And hopefully that's how it comes off. I mean, I don't want to be contrived. I don't want to rehearse what I'm going to say in an open or, you know, when a guy hits a winning part. I want to live it. I want to be with Nick Faldo, Judy Rankin, Frank Nablo, whoever it is, watching this golf tournament with you at home in the Lazy Boy, and we're all just talking about it. And hopefully we know a little bit more than you because we've studied it, or Frank's an expert and with a great player, or, or Nick, or however. Yeah, maybe they know more than you, and they're going to teach you something, but we're going to experience it in the moment and have it hit us as if we're watching it in a commercial break. I want it to be as close to commercial break and how we watch a golf tournament is uh, it is when we're on the air. Well, what I would say just from watching and listening to you for all these years is that you're kind of equal parts enthusiastic but diplomatic. I would not say you're one of the golf commentators that is constantly stirring up controversy, but you are obviously very passionately engaged in watching and calling these matches. There's no flatline with Terry Gannon at all. I always feel like you're really into it. Uh, what's it like working with kind of more iconic or iconoclastic people and kind of having to be more of the diplomat? Because it seems like you are kind of the, the balancing act that goes on on these broadcasts with some kind of more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, witty and difficult people on occasion. I mean, what, what, what goes into kind of being the balancing act there? Well, you, you are, as a host or play-by-play guy, a traffic cop. You are in charge of the broadcast, getting it from here over to there, bringing it back, hopefully, you know, hopefully as seamlessly as you can those transitions between coming from here and throwing it out to uh, 14, you know, with um, David Faraday uh, out there, that's your job to bring everybody in and, and maybe in a lull to ask a question which takes you to a certain place. Um, you're constantly thinking about a couple of things. Number one, documenting the action. That's first and foremost. Telling the story of what's going on. And that 
that means telling the story of players too, their backstory. You know, talking about Brendan Todd and, and, and all the struggles that he went through, and now he's on the verge of winning his second, and then ultimately almost his third in a row. Um, so that the, the viewer at home, some might know the story already, but some might not, and it gives them an appreciation of why do I care about this person? Why do I care about this team? You're you're constantly trying to do that, and then I want you to spend want to spend time with us. Like I can't define that. I can't tell you whether that means livening up the atmosphere or telling not telling a joke, but being the seeing the humorous side of something or taking you deeper on a certain uh, subject. I just want to make you want to spend that time with us and not click and turn somewhere else. And not artificially, because that's the last the last thing I want to do is be hyping something unnecessarily or have you sense that I'm not entirely uh, in in the moment with integrity, you know, treating it with, uh, I'm not trying to take you somewhere that isn't really what's going on, but I want you to want to spend that time. If I can do that, um, tell the story, document the story, tell the story of the players and the teams, and they'll make you want to spend the time, whatever that means, that's, then I'm doing my job. Um, and that means knowing when to, to pick the guy next to me's brain, you know, the expert, whoever that might be. I mean, Kurt Byer, hey, Kurt, you played this golf course back in the, what The choice he just made, the decision he just made, does that surprise you? Yeah, are you okay with that choice, whatever? Um, and I, you don't shy away from controversy or taking them down a path where they're going to really express their opinion, even if it's a negative one, you want that. But I'm not going to do that just for to be negative. You know, Then I think you're not authentic, where you're just trying to stir up controversy. I don't, I hope, I never go there. Well, just a follow-up then, I'm sure there's got to have been some times where you've been put on the spot and had to put out some fires. Can you think of any particular experience that you've had where you've kind of had to think quick on your feet to avoid catastrophe on air in any form at all? Oh, you try to put the, it's like an athlete. You you, you have a, a bad memory. You, you you hopefully don't have a memory of the bad shots. You put those out of your mind. So, um, yeah, I don't... Um, put out fires. Jeez. Uh, I had to hit you with a couple hardballs here, Terry. You know, I mean, I, I can't just only lob softies at you. No, 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 no. I appreciate the question. I, I, I'm trying to think. I mean, like an example, you're not going to... was Dick Button was a very controversial figure skating announcer and he would often say things about skaters that were you know oh my god that was a program that just makes me want to get up and go to the refrigerator and get a drink i don't want to stay for that and then it it would come to me to get that person off the ice and go to break you know and and i would have to not soften it but transition somehow to save that and um but i can't i if I think of one as we talk, I'll let you know. Okay. I can live with professional amnesia as an answer. That That's good. I like that. There you go. Okay. So a little bit more about golf. This fall has been considered one of the greatest fall 
PGA seasons, I think, ever. And I've had a number of people have this conversation with me that this has got to be one of the most marvelous fall stints for the PGA before it usually heats up in the new year. You mentioned Brendan Todd, obviously the amazing run that he just went on, Tiger winning Zozo. There's many examples recently. Uh, Can you put this into perspective? The fall used to be the time when people stopped watching the PGA Tour because it was all these little minor league events and not the big names. And now it seems like it's must-see TV every week, 365. Am I on to something there, or is that just too much hyperbole? Well, it's worked out that way. I mean, you know, we'll give the tour some credit for, you know, how they've reshaped the uh, the schedule. Um, now you could you could have a bunch of uh, tournaments where a guy wins by five, six shots, and so you get lucky the way it's turned out and with the Tiger win and whatnot. But it's certainly, you've got 11 events. You've got a quarter of the schedule, basically. Uh, more than a quarter of the schedule. Well, just about a quarter. Uh, before the New Year. So, you know, I think you've got guys now who are looking at it and saying some of the bigger quote-unquote names looking at go, you know, I, I might have to get out there and play a few of these because I start 2020, I'll be well back in the FedEx Cup, and then we got to scramble. And um, even the guys who, you know, build their years around major championships and the players and whatnot look at this and say, yeah, I don't want to get too far behind. Um, so I think that general way of thinking has taken a while to take hold through the years of the FedEx Cup, but it has now, especially with this many events in um, in 2019 before the turn of the calendar. And another moment, by the way, that my my favorite moment finish was Cameron Champ and, oh, yeah. uh, in Napa. I mean, anybody who has someone who's losing a loved one and especially someone who taught you the game and is responsible for you even being out there, who's an hour away, you're going back and forth, you just find out right then that they're they're basically going to pass. They're going to pass away soon. Um, and to go and win, I mean, that is just... And then to be pressed on the last hole to actually make the putt because, you know, he was up by a few and then it got tighter um, with your dad right up there and your, your grandfather um, in hospice care an hour away. To me, that was that, that went beyond sports. That was just a, a one of those moments where you're witnessing and... Uh, you find it hard to believe because it's a fairy tale in a way. I mean, that, that you draw it up that way, but it, there's so much depth to it and so much meaning and, and pain. In that same moment, there was so much pain and the tears were both of joy but also of sadness. And that was some, that was the most meaningful moment for me of the of the fall. I was watching that with my dad, and we both wept watching that. I 100% agree. I don't think if you have a loved one in your life that you've been close to and that has shaped your life that you don't feel what Cameron felt right there. I agree with you 100%. Well, when he made the putt and, and you know, you react as, a, as an announcer, you react, but then it was just like, shut up and let the pictures play. It was, you, there's nothing you can add to this than the real sound, the real pictures of what was going on. And the other aspect of that, from me sitting there, I was getting choked up. I mean, in that moment, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting back tears. And, and you, 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 man, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was some moment. Well, that's really special that you get to be a part of so many of these 
amazing moments and these these profound moments for people. I know every golf lover, every golf analyst, every golfer loves to expound upon why they love golf. I think I'd be remiss not to ask you that question with your perch that you get to sit in every week to watch it and and be a part of it. What makes golf so special to you? I personally think it's the greatest game of them all for many reasons, but I'm not, I don't want to put those words in your mouth. What makes golf special to you, Terry? History. More than anything, history. It is it is a game where the players, the people running it, they recognize those who came before. I mean, there's a great place in the game for Bobby Jones and Hogan and Palmer and Nicholas and, and the young kids. I don't care if they're 18, 19 years old or just out of college. They come out here. They know the history of the game. And there's that linkage. And yes, technology changes things and yes they're hitting it a lot farther but you can also i mean the fact that you can go play st andrews and we're i mean first known uh, place that they play i mean that it was old tom morris and i can i can go play that golf course um to me that sets it apart from a lot of different uh, games because other other sports have histories um, and baseball does this to some extent too, but um, the recognition of the past. The, the other thing is, for me, golf, the fascinating mental side of it. It, it you know, 99% of the time that you spend on a golf course is not actually spent in the activity of golfing. The swing, you know, uh, the putt, it is, it is the time spent in between. And both the challenge of mentally figuring out what you're going to do with the next shot. And, and I try, you know, I, I'm going to apologize to anybody out there if they, if they ever hear me talk over a caddy player discussion. Sometimes we have trouble hearing it. You might hear it better than we do. And so, but every time there is that discussion, I'm trying to shut up. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, because that's actually some insight into what the player is thinking and the advice he's getting. But then the mental side of it from a pressure standpoint too, trying to spend the, that time where you walk from your tee shot, from teeing off down to your second shot, uh, what is going on in your mind? You know, say young Kim, just the, the last LPGA Tour event that we did, I mean, she's got a big lead, up by five on Saturday at some point, then by three coming down the stretch. Well, she ends up um, missing a putt, almost missing a part putt on 17, which is an eagle hole. And then she comes to the tee at, seven, at 18 for the largest purse in women's golf history. And now she's tied. And having to get it back together and just the look on her, and it was a long walk between 17 green and 18 tee. That mental as what is going through her mind in that moment. Because unlike basketball, it's not reactive. You know, I, I remember in the championship game, there was a timeout taken with 50, uh, 54 seconds left, just under a minute, and we're tied, and we're going to set up our last possession. I remember in the timeout thinking, Lord, don't let me be Freddie Brown, who was the guy the year before for Georgetown who threw the ball to James Worthy, who was on North Carolina, cost them the game. And and but once you you inbound the ball, you don't even think about that. 
you you react. It's a reactive thing. Golf doesn't give you that. You decide when you're going to hit the shot. And sometimes it is hard to stand up there and actually go ahead and do it. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that's a great answer. I really appreciate that. I've only got a couple more questions for you today, Terry. These are kind of my my go-to hardballs now. Michael Whalen, the former architect of the Golf Channel, says that every interview that he's ever had, he wishes someone would ask him, what's your greatest regret? I know that's not a fun question, but Terry, what's your greatest regret that you have as far as your life, your life in broadcasting, pretty much whatever you want to make it? What's your greatest regret? First of all, congratulations on your on your story. Your, your profile is outstanding, and that if I tell anybody, please go read what what you wrote on Mike Willen. That, that was outstanding writing. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. On that's a com- compelling, compelling story. Um, well, I've had a great run, and it continues. I don't want it to end anytime soon. Well, the one thing that this job does is it takes you away from your family a lot more than you would like to be away. And I've spent the better part of the last 30 years talking about on TV other people's kids while mine were at home. And thank God I have a wife, their mom, who has been at home taking care of them. And I get off the road, you come home, and, you know, uh, it's, it's you make that time you have at home, especially you can. But I do regret missing dance recitals and basketball games and soccer games through the years and uh, even a graduation or two because I was on the road working. And I would love to get that time back. But um, you make the most of it, and, and I have no complaints. I have that regret, but no complaints, even with the time spent away from the family. Okay, so now on the flip side of this, what is your greatest aspiration still? If Terry Gannon was making a wish list for what you wish you could still accomplish in your life, whether it be professionally or personally, what would the biggest wish be or the biggest aspiration be on your list? I don't want to limit myself. Now you're asking me to limit myself. (laughs) Years ago, if I do that, then I'm going to turn down opportunities that weren't on that list. Um, Now, you know what? To be honest, I want to keep doing this as long as I can do it. And my my wish list would involve great, drama-filled, compelling endings to every sporting event that I do, no matter what sport it is. Let's have every big golf event this year come down to the last hole or beyond and go to a playoff and be dramatic. And I want to be a part of that. And I want to keep calling that action for years to come. Um, Whether that means at the Olympics, whether it means at major championships in golf, uh, someday college basketball final game, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to take me, but I'm going to be wide open to any opportunity that takes me where that action's compelling. That's a wonderful answer. All right, final question. It is Thanksgiving weekend, and I feel like this is something I do with all of the children I teach. What are you most grateful for this year? I mean, there are obvious answers, and there are probably answers we didn't see coming, but any gratitude list you'd like to put out there on this Thanksgiving weekend? Man, every every moment that uh, you're around uh, breathing is, is one to be thankful for. But I, I'm thankful for health and the ability to get on an airplane and go to games and, uh, and golf tournaments every week. Um, I think 
the rest of the golf season, uh, we might be thankful at the end of that too, because you, you got uh, Tiger back playing and winning, and you got big, you got kept. I mean, you got President's Cup. I'm thankful for a chance to go to Australia. I'll be going to the Royal Melbourne um, and uh, covering the President's Cup for NBC and Golf Channel. Um, and it's going to be a, a hell of a year, I think, in golf. So I'm thankful for that and, uh, and the major players who are out there making it so. Well, I am thankful that you spent this hour talking with me and our listeners. Terry, thank you so much. Any final shout-outs you'd like to make? Anybody that you'd like to give credit to before you get off the air, or are we done here? No, thanks, man. I appreciate spending the time. It was a good uh, good time uh, right here at the holidays to catch up and then uh, go down memory lane a little bit, too. So thanks. Appreciate it. Well, this has been Tucker Booth with Terry Gannon on the From the Back Tees Rappers Don't Golf podcast Thanksgiving edition. Thank you once again, Terry Gannon. Be sure to check him out every single week with the golf coverage. Like he said, President's Cup's coming right up. Be sure to tune in, and you'll probably see him at the Olympics and lots of other places. But, Terry, thanks again for being here, man. Have a good one. All right. Take care, Tucker. Thanks, man.